Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. It has been tough finding the time to get this one over the line. I work in a school and it's been open throughout this entire period. Or is it an era yet? I think it's an era. And it's been pretty relentless. Um, but it's half term now. And so here we are at last. And I'm so glad to be able to share this, which is the final part of the conversation about Tumbleweed Connection that I had with John Higgins and Peter Thomas way back now towards the end of 2020. Before we get going, let me tell you a bit about what the cover image is for this podcast, what that's all about. It comes courtesy of my eagle-eyed correspondent, John Keane, and it's a collage that I've put together made up of images and some text from a handwritten village magazine that 11-year-old Bernie published alongside his 13-year-old brother, Tony. There are five issues of the magazine available to look at and buy, I think, at the auctioneer's website, which I've linked in the episode description. Two of them are called Roundabout Bullseye, and there are three copies of the Ombi Gazette, and they were created between July 1960 and August 1961. And it's quite something. The issues, as I say, were individually written and drawn and then sold to residents of the village for four pence. It's also mentioned that some were given away. That any of these still exist is nothing short of miraculous. And it's a complete treasure trove of Bernie's early grounding in cowboy culture. And it's interspersed with some of the most perfectly prosaic, hyperlocal news items like an announcement about his mum's whist drive for the Spastic Society. And there are also adverts. There's one there for his dad's eggs, proudly claiming to be the best eggs of all Ombi. And there are jokes, competitions. There's a comic called Buzzer the Bee. And there's also a drawing of a Viking longboat that must have used up half a biro per issue. But most importantly, the magazines are peppered with Wild West references. There's drawings of antique guns that are very reminiscent of the packaging for Tumbleweed Connection. There's a serialised story called The Sacred Tomahawk. There's a written profile of Buffalo Bill. He's Cowboy of the Month. And there's a profile and drawing of Wyatt Earp. And then there's an illustrated cowboy and Indian story called The Last Gunfight. If you head round to the auctioneer's website, you'll get a sense of what was firing young Bernie's imagination back then. And just to think of all of these ideas ricocheting around in his mind. And then somehow that becoming the album that we get to hold in our hands these days. And it's well worth investigating the imagery I wish I'd done this before I uh, actually did the conversation with John and Peter. But if you read about Wyatt Earp, for example, you're going to find references to the town of Tombstone. If you read about the Pinkerton Detective Agency, you'll soon stumble upon Albert Horsley. He was known as Harry Orchard and he was a serial bigamist and murderer. And uh, he didn't put up a fight when he was questioned about his crimes and he admitted his guilt to a Pinkerton detective 
and he saw himself as some sort of a hired gun assassin. If you read about the Battle of the Alamo, you'll soon see the parallels between the Alamo mission and the mission that gets burned down at the end of our album, and with the wife possibly being Susanna Dickinson. Have a look. It's great fun delving into the imagery, and it's something I think I'll return to in the future. In the meantime, on with the episode. Once again, I've got my two close associates with me here. I've got Peter Thomas from PMC Speakers. Is that right, Peter? Have I got it right? It is, yes. Thanks, Neil. Hello again. Hello. And Peter is a preeminent collector and understander of Elton's early years. And also we've got John Higgins, fresh from his sleep in the US of A. Um, he is the feature writer at eltonjohn.com and Elton's legacy consultant. Welcome to the podcast for, the, I think, the fourth time, John. Welcome. Thank you very much, Neil. I counted three, but... Uh, ah, I, but I broke uh, one oh, of no, them in two. Yeah. That's right. That's, right. That, that, that's the key difference, actually. So last time we did this, we did a, a marathon, an epic, didn't we? Yes, for the Black Album, yeah. Well, this time we've broken it up into a natural pause. They had just in the studio recorded the Mick Ronson version of Mad Men, and we're coming back in at that point in the story of the production of Tumbleweed Connection, which, as we were saying is not compressed in the manner of the Elton John album. It's a, quite a sprawling affair that took six months or so? Roughly. I'm bad at maths, but yes. Yeah, I think it's starting in March and heading through till August. So, no, that's five. But, yeah, the, the break we just took uh, sort of replicates the break that they took uh, between sessions. So we left off at May 18th and we're going to resume June 2. So that's, what, just about two weeks or so. And there was a few bits and pieces going on in there, weren't there? We did touch on the in concert at the end of the last recording um, where the uh, three-piece played. Did the three-piece do Burn Down the Mission? This is the question I asked before. They did, didn't they? It was the only three-piece song from the in concert at BBC. Yes, that's right. Yes. Oh, well, there we go. So if someone were to listen to this directly after the previous episode... I'm going to sound very dense because I've forgotten everything that we talked about. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get back into the spirit of it, though. And the next session, we don't know if it was morning or afternoon or evening, John. You've got, you've got the tapes for this? I do have the tape, but again, I have no actual time on them. And it's the only song done on that day. So, uh, no, I don't know what time of day or night it could have been. But it was Tuesday the 2nd of June, if you want a day of the week. And I've created a, uh, an acoustic guitar... Scape with my edit. Let's have a listen to some of it. Starts with just Elton's vocal. There are two acoustic guitars on this one. Yeah, and they actually alternate in your left and right speaker. Ah, right. Which, when it's um, mixed in the way it was issued, isn't such an issue. But when you can only really hear the vocal and the acoustic guitar, yeah. it's a bit disorientating. You feel like you're being battered around the head from sides. <laughs> Table tennis or something. Yeah, I think it will come in now. Key. 
I've heard these tracks before, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but not these bongos. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no, there is. Yeah, Robin Jones on Congress. Yeah. That's yeah. brilliant. Uh, brass sounds great on that as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really throaty and pulsing. It is a wild journey musically, this track. Uh, I went back to my favourite musical resource for Elton, which is eltonchords.com, which has got a few uh, wrong ones in there, but Burn Down the Mission is very well done. And jumps around all over the place. This section, the verse is in G, and then when it goes, bring your family down to the riverside is in F, and then it jumps up to a A flat, and then that modulates to a B flat for the end of the chorus. <laughs> I wrote this down, and then, then the solo's in F, isn't it? Dun, 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 yeah, yeah, and then right. that modulates to G. Right, 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 right. And then you have that crazy, um, a day in the lifestyle link piece that goes, you know, ah, a bit, and then you're back in G again. And I don't think it's a coincidence that there's that ah, and you're back in G, which is the same key as a day in the life. I feel this is a bit a day in the life e from Elton. This one, I never would have thought of that, uh, not being a key guy. But yeah, um, sure. And and again, we spoke about Laura Nero before, and this is the this is the Laura Nero inspired song on the album for sure and yeah what what i love about the whole process and what you just spoke about neil is again uh, the demo for this is now out for everyone to enjoy on elton jewel box and before i heard it i wondered you know how much of this sort of vamping and improvisation sounding and the instrumental breaks how much of that was built into the song that elton wrote and how much of that was developed during the actual recording that we're listening to now mm. And my goodness, it was all there, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I don't know about you, but I find that fascinating about the demos is that you can almost hear the production in in the demo because he's obviously mapped in his mind how he wants it to to sound. I mean, obviously, Gus Studgeon interpreted that, but do you know what I mean? There's yeah, the you whole... mean like in the change of pace between the four main different sections? Yeah. In, in the verse yeah, yeah. and the chorus? What, what, yeah, and I mean, occasionally you hear, the, you, you almost hear the arrangement sometimes in it. I know what you mean. Sometimes yeah. you can hear some of those notes and you feel yeah. yourself in Buckmaster's position sometimes. Yes, you can almost see him sort of going, oh, I know what that, you know, I know what that means. It's like, oh, right. I think I heard a note there. But then again, it's like, yeah, it's like when you're expecting to see a cat, you think you see a cat yeah. everywhere, isn't it? So you know, <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be there. So you're kind of hearing for it. But I, I, I'm always trying to work out whether or not I'm imagining it there because it needs to be there or because I'm used to it being there. It's hard. Yeah, it's isn't always it? possible, isn't it? But I do I do think that he had a very clear clear idea of how he wanted them to sound. I, that's the impression I always get when I hear the, the demos. Yeah, they're pretty complete. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Even if we just talk about sort of loudness and softness of parts or the tone changes, we're certainly there. And yeah, you can almost hear Elton's mind buzzing along in the demo. Yeah. It's really wonderful. It's both stripped down and raw, the demo, but at the same time, incredibly reminiscent of the final version. Yeah. 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 And, and Buckmaster did do a super job with this one, didn't he? Yeah. He must have had so much fun doing this. You know, having both an orchestra and a horn section at his disposal 
which was not the case on, on every song that he did, and to have these soft symphonic parts and then these rock out sort of jamming on stage almost parts to, to play with all in one song. Yeah, yeah. The exploration of styles must have been really exciting for him. I love seeing them perform this on the uh, the Festival Hall concert in 72. I mean, that is just wonderful, seeing the whole orchestra playing it. Yeah. You know, with the band. That really brings home how it must have been when they were recording it. It takes on a whole added dimension, doesn't it? Yeah. It reminds me of the Procol Harum Live with Edmonton Symphony Orchestra thing, which as far as I know, it's not on video, but that to me was one of the first things I ever heard that had a rock band with a symphonic orchestra, ironically yeah. produced by our friend Chris Thomas. It opens the song up, and just seeing it on video, as you say, Peter, yeah. uh, does does the same. And I, I, I'll shut up in a moment, but I want to just mention also that Buckmaster didn't just uh, do the orchestra and horns on this one. He actually arrange the whole band yeah it's a top to bottom one isn't it yeah i think elton as we've said he kind of explained through his demo exactly how these sections were going to go but where his mind was at to create something like this from what was probably looked like quite a straight set of lyrics from bernie do we have the lyric sheet no as far as i know we don't because it feels like quite a structured lyric i'd need to look at it written down and elton did create lots of four line chunks but they're sort of stacked upon each other in this very almost humorous manner it just gets more and more outlandish the music as it develops yeah uh, before you end up in this crazy dance scene and it's it's like <laughs> when you follow the lyrics it's getting desperate you know it's it's literally getting desperate it doesn't sound <laughs> i didn't realize i was quoting the lyric there it it doesn't sound like the the burning down of the mission is going to be very successful you know, it doesn't sound like a celebration at the end. It's like things are getting stressful. It's like a double-speed slapstick fight scene, almost. Yeah, it could have been a ponderous ballad throughout, yeah. right? Yeah. But what's the meaning of the dance bit? What's the meaning of the... Right, right, right. It doesn't feel like it's like, yay, freedom. It's not like that bit at the end of The Matrix where they're all having that party. <laughs> it's not like that. I don't know. Things are going a bit wild. Well... The last lines of the of the lyric are, what more could I do just to keep her warm? Her, in this case, being the protagonist's wife. Mm. So what more could I do just to keep her warm than burn down the mission wall? So not a lot of exultation there. <laughs> and I don't want to also skip over the very first line of the lyric. You tell me there's an angel in your tree, oh, which yeah. is yet another Bernie reference to the angel tree of his Lincolnshire youth. Yeah. And there's a similar lyrical reference at the beginning of Cry Willow Cry, isn't there, as well, talking about sitting under a tree. Yes, that tree got a lot of, he got a lot of mileage out of that tree. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Ombi and I, had, I tried to have a look for the tree, but I couldn't suss it out. I couldn't quite work out where it was. And then someone's told me it's actually been um, dug out, so it's not there anymore, apparently. I thought you were going to say it was burnt down with the mission. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's quite a violent thing that Elton got to sing, isn't it? You know, burn it down, burn it down. He was screaming in America. In a time of political tension and a lot of change and a lot of people fighting for their rights, as there was over there, and the whole thing about Vietnam as well, it's quite it's an incendiary thing to be shouting in a theatre. Interesting. I just, with what you just said, all I can think of is, what are you talking about then or now? <laughs> We haven't moved one inch. <laughs> <laughs>
that had never really occurred to me. But there's an element of that there, isn't there? You can't be shouting, burn it down, burn it down. And everyone in the crowd is shouting, burn it down. And what are we burning down? We're burning down, well, the mission, which is obviously a religious thing, which is not a great thing to be shouting in America. But also what's going on around us. Yeah, burn that down. It's, it's, it's a right. young statement. It's a student's kind of song, isn't it, in that way? Yeah, that's a good point. And I wonder if we had been lucky enough to be in an audience in one of the shows in, say, 1971, uh, again, with all that was going on in America, but also the world back then, uh, yeah, it would have taken on quite a more profound meaning than it does sitting in your hundred and whatever dollar seats, uh, you know, on recent tours, watching it from a distance and, and from a distance from the context of when it was written as well. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I feel like this song was almost written for the three-piece. I, I wonder, you know, it works so well. We've never really heard it presented in any other way live around about that time. Right. We know that it was written around March time as well, don't we? We've got a registration date for this and Madman around about the same time. And I wonder if he was starting to change the way he wrote a little bit so that it suited that setup a little bit more. It was, yeah, it was April 10th for this one. And, and the rendition that, that the three-piece did, which, you know, which one heard and leapt out of their seats hearing on a 171170, you know, it's almost as if the song was written for them. But this is one of the songs on Tumbleweed that is an anomaly because it doesn't have Hookfoot on it and doesn't have Nigel or Dee on it. It's, mm. It is Les Thatcher and Mike Egan on acoustic guitars and then the staggeringly great Herbie Flowers on bass and uh, equally as great Barry Morgan on drums and then Chris Lawrence on acoustic bass and then Robin Jones on not one but two pieces of percussion and then Brian Dee on organ. So sort of held over people from the Elton John album. Yeah. But for this album, it was just three songs that have this actual setup of musicians on it. And, and also, we just kind of established the fact that they recorded these two Paul Buckmaster songs next to one another a week between. So yeah. that's interesting, I feel. It's a good observation that the Hookfoot wasn't there during the early June, and one has to wonder, maybe they were just on some sort of tour? The question I'm kind of trying to pose is, what went wrong with the idea of Caleb joining them live? Because in November, he says that he'd signed for Chess when he was talking to Danny Hutton, that's November 69. Mm -hmm. And he was like, will nothing go right because <laughs> Caleb's got his own band signed, you know, and it was a real spanner in the works for him at the time. Right. And then by the time March comes around, there's been a change of plan, big change of plan. They've started to work out that he is not just going to be this album musician with a shadow over him, but he is going to be a performer and this is how they're going to present it. But then what about the fact that Caleb's still around the whole time. I mean, I know that they're touring, but I don't know. I just feel like it could have happened, and I wonder why it didn't. Well, never know. I think, as I recall Caleb telling me, that he saw them as two very different things. Hookfoot as really where he wanted to put his focus once Hookfoot became a, a thing, and certainly after they became signed. So I think we're just very fortunate that Caleb was involved at all, yeah. as long as he was, through this album, and then into Madman as well. Yeah, we're going to hear some classic Caleb as well today in this episode. Some real fantastic stuff from Caleb. Shall we move on then, if anyone else doesn't have uh, anything else to say about this one? Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of gigs now between Burn Down the Mission on June 2nd and Come Down in Time on June 11th. Oh. So what do we have? We have the Marquee Club gig on June 5th. Ah, or a Marquee yes. Club gig. 
the one where the group business was in support. Then what happens next on June 7th is uh, the Roundhouse. And that was the Fotheringay gig at the Roundhouse uh, with... The what day? Uh, Fotheringay. Is that, am I pronouncing that? Oh, Fothering. I thought you said Fathering Day. <laughs> yes, <no. laughs> is, that, is that what you Americans call Father's no, Day? No, it's, yeah. it's a well-known British, <laughs> British holiday, Fothering Day. Yeah, uh, no. Fothering Day. Fothering Day uh, with Elton in support, Humble Bums, uh, which we uh, can make Billy the Connolly. Billy Connolly connection. And then Mungo Jerry, also on that same They were bill. getting quite big at the time. Yeah, uh, but they were the first band on stage that night. And I and so I've got so confused with Knock, but I have Knock here as well. How do you say it? The uh, Europe-Belgian Song Festival, uh, whatever it is. I don't know how they say it. I pronounce it Noke, but I'm sure I'm way off. Um, but that's not... Are you sure, John? Hang on. All right, let's find out. If you look at IMDb... For example, there's a record for the Knock Festival, however right, you say that's it. That's probably good. And that's the 6th of June. Right, we did discuss this. And I still, yeah. in my database, have it as July 11th, and, and you didn't like that. I mean, it would actually make more sense. He was in Berlin then. but Yeah, he was in Berlin uh, the day before, and then he was in Stockholm a week later. I don't know. How can we sort this out? Um, oh, can we sort Pete has to decide. I'm remaining neutral. <laughs> I've come over all Switzerland here. <laughs> We're in Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. Come on, keep up. <laughs> so again, Neil, you you think Knock was Knock was when? I think it was Saturday, the sixth of June. Right. I will discreetly stay away from this because uh, I just don't know. Um, okay. So you, well, you I, I think it, I, I'm I'm going for that date. I'm not entirely sure. It okay. does seem a bit unlikely, but anyway. No, do what you got to do. So that knock, they did border song, didn't they? And one. Is that the story? Do you do you know anything about this? No, Peter? not at all. I'm oh. afraid. No. Um, and there's no footage from this one. As I said, I was pretty sure that that early European border song was from this, but it's not. It's the hits a go go, isn't it? Right. That one. But I do think that this is around about the time um, when he recorded the Your Song video on one of the European jaunts. Right, that's correct. That wandering in the woods, trying not to trip over your microphone cord. Yeah, Elton in his natural habitat being <laughs> observed by 30 cameramen and exactly. interviewers. Reg in the wild. It has a real Monty Python vibe, doesn't it? <laughs> it almost does, yes, right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It, there are many skits from Monty Python that I flashed on when I first saw that video. Yeah, absolutely. Like when they're grabbing the microphone from each yes, other and having a fight right. to the death. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's move on to something we definitely do know happened, and that is that, headed by Paul Buckmaster on Thursday, the 11th of June, um, in probably the earlier session of the two, the band, composed of who, John, who was in there for this? Yeah, it was the earlier session. Uh, it yes. was a 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. session for Come Down oh. in Time on June 11th. And so we have Elton on lead vocal only. There's no piano on this track. Oh, yeah. Les Thatcher uh, on acoustic guitar, so the same as Mission. Herbie Flowers on bass, the same as Mission. Chris Lawrence on acoustic bass, the same as Mission. Barry Morgan on drums. And then our dear friend and, and friend of the podcast, Skyla Kanga mm. on harp. Yes. Paul Buckmaster again arranging, and not just the orchestra, but the entire ensemble. 
and Carl Jenkins uh, featured on oboe. I love this arrangement. He must have literally thought, I hear an oboe in his mind. It must have just jumped out at him because it definitely is the right sound for this song. Yeah, I agree. And the times that he's pulled this out in concert with a band, uh, I believe it was the 19, it was the Made in England tour mm. when they brought John Jorgensen into the band. He didn't play oboe, certainly, but um, he played a woodwind instrument during the performance Probably of this. a clarinet, this. did it? It may have been, yeah, it may have been oh. a clarinet. You can't imagine the song without it. It's, it's such a sort of vocal sound, so it's almost like it's duetting with Elton in places, isn't it? Especially with Elton having such a reedy voice at this time. Yeah, yeah, it's well observed. I think that's the beauty of Paul's work at its best, is that it's so ingrained and it doesn't take over. This upcoming bit is the bit that I wanted to highlight. I just love this second verse. That descending part has just got some really unexpected notes in it, hasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, something that really occurred to me while you played that was how much it's like Friends, uh, not the track. I mean, the album. Yeah. That really hit me then, that it sounds like the arrangements in Friends. It's quite complex. I was thinking the yes. exact same thing. It pre-evokes the orchestral parts yeah. that Paul did for Friends, both in arrangement and, and instrumentation. Yeah. 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 And the other lovely thing, I think, about that version of Come Down in Time is that it captures the, the sort of gentleness of the original demo, which often can sometimes get lost, I always think. Yeah, certainly in some of the later live performances, it sometimes turns into a bit of a straightforward ballad. Yeah. Whereas actually, it has more in common with a piece of classical music, doesn't it? It's very ornately structured yeah. and overlapping in and of itself. Yeah. It's a classic, isn't it? it yeah. It's, oh, you know... Stands the test of time is such a trite phrase, but this one really, really does. And maybe you know better than I, but I defy you to explain to me what a cluster of night jars is uh, exactly. Uh, is there such a thing as a night jar? Yeah, yes, there bird. is, surely. Yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah. So thank it's a cluster of birds. Well, thank you. See, I didn't know that. <laughs> I had no idea. I was taking it far more literally. Well, that's pretty literal. No, but I was thinking it was an actual jar. I didn't know that a night jar right. was a type of bird. <laughs> Like a jar. Yeah, and I, so I'm 61 years old. I had no idea. This is what I learned today. Fabulous. Or maybe it's a British bird. I don't know. Peter knows his birds better than I do, I bet. Me? 
<laughs> I'm guessing. You live in a country-ish location. You deal with the countryside. That's true. All I know is they're a nocturnal bird. That's about it, really. All right. I don't think I've ever seen one. But, uh, Nor a cluster, then. No, I certainly no. haven't seen a cluster of them. I haven't even seen yeah, one. Maybe they do cluster together, and that's when they're at their most dangerous. <laughs> they're ganging up on you. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you're trying to go out with a girl. <laughs> the other bit of trivia on this that I didn't know until recently, until I basically was almost done writing the article on EltonJohn.com about Tumbleweed at 50, was that according to Valerie, the woman that we got to know a little bit in first episode of Hyanton, Come Down in Time was a lyric written about her as well. Right. Are we able to talk about how we know that? I'll tell you how I think I know is that I heard a rumor that I thought well enough of to include it in the article. And, and not every rumor gets to rise to that level, but um, this one I felt was from a good enough source. Which to me kind of puts some credence to the idea that your song maybe did have something of a target in its writing. Just putting that out there, because they're the same sort of time, aren't they, John? in their writing. I think so, yeah. Just because yeah. it's on a later album doesn't mean it was a later lyric. Yeah, most yeah, certainly. I think it was around about then. And Neil, what do you make of the last two lines? I think it's the only, one of the few, if not the only Bernie lyrics that has just sort of like a hanging pair of lines at the end that aren't part of a verse or a chorus. Well, obviously, they do do the same thing, whether or not it's written in the lyrics, but they do do the same thing in Where To Now St. Peter, don't they, in a way? They just, and it is obviously just a repeat of a previous verse. Having a new bit of verse at the end like that, yeah, that's mm, unusual. Not only for Elton, yes, for anyone, it's quite an unusual move. And it does mark the song out, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't think they've ever done that before. It's a great idea, though. And it just ends with a question. Like, as far as uh, Buckmaster has arranged it, it just ends with this perfect question. I know it's not a question, but right. musically, right. it has the form of a question, doesn't it? It's like, where do we want to be on this night? It's like, well, do you want to be here or do you want to not be there? That's kind of the question, isn't it? Do you want to be waiting or do you want to know? And I feel like it puts you exactly on that precipice of thought there. Yeah, the unresolved, which is so unusual in rock slash pop or whatever we want to call this. Americana. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just such an interesting maneuver by Bernie that he, to my recollection, never really revisited. The thing that uh, I could never understand at the time was why didn't they release this Come Down in Time as a single? Right, we haven't spoken about this, but this album had no singles. No. Not in the UK or the US. It, it had one in a, in a foreign land. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's such a strong song. Was that in Germany? I feel like it's always Germany. I'm looking at it. It's always Germany. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, no. Uh, Country Comfort was released as a single in, of all places, New Zealand. No. Oh. Maybe just by mistake. Yes, maybe. <laughs> An administrative cock-up. It, it peaked at number 15. It charted and, wow. and reached number 15 on the New Zealand charts in 1970. That's not a mistake, is it? I, I would have liked to have asked Rick Frio, and maybe I will again. So just to remind us all, Rick Frio is the uni slash MCA record executive that was uh, promoting these albums, the Black Album and Tumbleweed and onwards. Mm. 
so he would have been involved in whatever high-level discussions there were back then as to, well, you know, what are we going to do for the single on this album? Mm. I, I'm clueless as to uh, not only what night jars are, but why they made that decision. I mean, certainly Country Comfort, you know, uh, not my favorite song on the album, but certainly has that single sort of sound to it. Yeah. yeah. And Peter's point is very, very well taken. Can you imagine how well this would have done yeah. if Come Down in Time had been released as a single? And, you know, and now 50 years later, it has been just an yes. alternate form. <laughs> Which almost feels like an alternate reality world that we're living in now, doesn't it? It's like where a come down in time can have a single and regimental sergeant Zippo can have a video. Yeah. I mean, it could be that, I mean, at that time, you know, there were album bands and single bands and maybe they just took the decision they didn't want to become a, a singles band and not release a single from it. It certainly feels like a, a strong artistic statement having an album at this time that didn't have a single on it. Obviously, the next one in the UK didn't either. Well, Friends came out as a single, didn't it? Oh, yes, it did. Yeah, it did. And uh, you were talking about Mad Men, though? Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah. But Tiny Tiny Dancer didn't come out, of course, until until much, 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 much later. But it it was released as a... uh, Was it a single in the US? I'm sure it was, Tiny Dancer. Or was it Leave On? can't remember both actually I think. yeah i thought they were yeah and they're very unconventional singles running at five and a half six minutes yeah so long. yeah so they're, they're not really radio friendly no. so they weren't thinking along those lines at all with this oh, no, we, band, oh so sorry we just had a big drop out there right i'm gonna cut in here for a moment i would have edited the dropout out but as you'll see John gets his own back for the Nightjar thing a little later, and in so doing, he's kind of made me edit it in this horrible way. Thanks, John. Anyway, back to the episode. Where were we? We were talking about Come Down in Time. Actually, there was one place that my brain was taking me, which is to think about the other songs that were also being written around about the time of recording this. While he was writing Burn Down the Mission and Madman, he was presumably writing some of the Friends songs like Honey Roll... Um, can I put you on? And also, Indian Sunset has to have been written around about now. I wonder about Indian Sunset. I was just listening to the complete 171170 as broadcasted. Yep. Mm. And in introducing Indian Sunset on that broadcast, he says that was written after he and Bernie had first come to America and they visited an Indian reservation. Ah. Yeah. which is honestly not something I remember being part of the story, but that's what Elton said on November 17th, 1970. I didn't know that. I don't think I've heard that little bit of banter. I know the banter's always been cut out, edited, moved, and random stuff yeah. has happened to it. Yeah, um, yeah and it's been... I think there's Terry Bangley, is that the guy's name on YouTube, has tried to reconstruct the actual thing, and it's obviously got lots of different sources and quite poor quality sources for some of the banter. Yeah, right. But yeah, no, that one that one passed me by. I might keep that in, even though it makes me look silly. Take out all my night jars and keep that in so that I look good and you, you look good. No, we're, we're putting in extra night jars. <laughs> That'll be the image of the uh, episode. Yeah, you should, you should. It's going to be some jars in bed. I'm never going to lift that down. <laughs> no, I feel like an absolute idiot, but what are you going to do? Uh, I wonder, I'll have to look up to see if we have night jars here in America. Maybe that's my only defense. Yeah, I think that would be yeah. a, a get-out-of-jail-free <laughs> card if they were. Definitely. Shall we move on? I'm going to stick Country Comfort on in the background. 
and uh, we can talk about this one, which is not, well, I already get the feeling this is not a strong favorite of many of the people in the room. I'm just looking again at my master track sheet. And so they did try a take of, of Country Comfort right after Come Down in Time, the same session before they broke for whatever meal they broke for. But it wasn't used. Right. Then they did break for whatever meal. So I guess that would have been lunch because we know that Come Down in Time was a morning session. So they broke for lunch after uh, not succeeding with Country Comfort and gave it another go straight away. And it worked out. So, yeah, these are three-hour sessions, aren't they? Is that right, John? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. They, they did knock out Come Down in Time pretty quickly. Yes, very, very fast. I mean, a Country Comfort, it's not... It depends on my mood for this one. But once I sort of get in line with it, I, I really enjoy it. And and we have the not just the musicians that played on Come Down in Time and Burn Down the Mission, but we also have Caleb now on acoustic guitar. Mm. And then Ian Duck on his harmonica that uh, Neil told us last episode he, he tended to swallow. <laughs> that's a, yes, that's right. That was the procedure. Gordon Huntley on steel guitar. So again, now he's back from a previous demo. Yeah, so we now doubled the number of appearances of Gordon Huntley, haven't we? I think. And then, of course, Nigel and Dee on backing vocals. Probably the earliest moment of them being recorded with Elton, I would have thought. I mean, the question is, were they recorded on June 11th? My guess is they were not. No, that's a good point. Right? So they would have recorded all their parts on August 6th for this song and for the yeah. two subsequent songs. But the first, you know, appearance, basically, of them on, on an Elton record as a pair. Yeah. Shall we have a listen to the setup in the verse, how they've arranged? Oh, it's a solo. Hmm. 
It almost sounds like Nigel on drums there with that fill. Yeah, almost it? a little bit. Nigel Maybe Phil. he was taking notes. <laughs> I neglected to mention one of the uh, instruments, of course, and that part that you just played uh, really brought it to light, but uh, violinist Johnny Van Derrick. He's not on my credits. Why have I missed him? And I was listening to that thinking, that's a very odd-sounding harmonica. Where's he got it wedged this time? <laughs> um, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it's a, it's a violin, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. You know, I went through all of these tracks for my covers episode recently, where I picked my favourite covers of all the songs from Tumbleweed, and I think I developed more of an appreciation about what it is about Elton's version of this song that works. I'm not a massive country fan, mm. and this is pretty distilled country, but still, mm. there's something magical in the rhythm and the lurch that maybe straight country doesn't always have for me. It's sort of a, a lament, obviously, and Elton's vocal emphasizes that, I think. This is the first time we ever really hear his full-on southern drawl. Right, exactly. As we said last time, it is really head-scratching to consider that all of this was done before the artists themselves had ever stepped foot in America. You would think, listening to this song especially, if not the whole album, that these people had grown up here in America. That, that all they had yeah. done was listen yeah. to American music for their whole lives. It's it's so pure without being an yeah. impersonation. Mind you, UK television was dominated by Westerns mm -hmm. throughout the whole 60s. We also kind of grew up with them. So I guess that got into the, the creative juices, I think. I'm, I'm curious, sort of leaping off from that, Peter, and to you as well, Neil, was American country music, or, or whatever it was called back then, sort of hillbilly music or, or quasi-folk music, was that on the radio at all? Sure. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, probably the more middle-of-the-road end, like Jim yeah, okay. Reeves. I mean, not like it is now. Uh, what did you think of this sound then, Peter? Did you feel like, oh, here's an American album? No, I, 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 no, I, I always felt it was, uh, ironically, very English, <laughs> but I mean when you listen to his accent on Country Comfort. Yeah. I guess that's why it's my least favourite, because I just find it so overwhelmingly American. I mean, it's almost a caricature, I think. But, yeah. But that, that's just me. That's why the, the Rod version's got a little bit more cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, out of the two, I preferred his version. He says blasphemy. <laughs> um, but, you know. <laughs> All right. I could, do you know there's a button here that I can just press? That, just <laughs> you can delete that. Yeah. Yeah. But... but but yeah, I, no, it's just um, that's personal preference, isn't it, really? It's the only track that I think it goes a little bit too far with the accent, but the rest of it is beautiful. I, no, no, I never felt it was... It's weird, really, when you look at the album sleeve and everything, it breathes, you know, Wild West, but um, I don't think I really, really felt strongly about it back in the 70s. I mean, I do now. You just understood it for how it sounded to you. Yeah, I mean, I went through the phase of thinking, well, it must have been recorded in the States because it sounds so American. And, of course, you know, the same with the photograph on the sleeve. Right. You know, it took me quite a few years to realise that was was filmed in southern England. Amazing, isn't it? The irony of what it was is that I've actually been to that station and still didn't realise. <laughs> really? <laughs> so they've recently, um, within the last year or so, uh, they've re Yeah, they're making a thing it. of it, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, so you can go there and have your photo taken. Presumably yeah. they'll like some money for their trouble. I'm sure. No, when I went there, nobody knew about it, but then yeah. I, neither did I. <laughs> but they've, moved, they've moved all the signs back into where they should be for this. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a really great thing that they've what done. What a wonderful tribute. Yeah. yeah. 
it's an iconic photograph, I think. It's just amusing, isn't it, that actually the whole thing is ersatz. Yeah, no, I thought I could go somewhere in America and see that train station. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, brilliant concept by David Larkham, uh, the, the graphic designer for that. Yeah, album. I wonder who came up with the setting. Was it actually David that came up with the location? I would think so. It's a, it's a really clever, really good call. Yeah, and it wasn't just the front cover. The whole packaging was just perfectly done. I mean, the real giveaway on that tumbleweed front cover was the fact that it advertises the Daily Telegraph. Yes, and, that's uh, there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Should we scoot forward, gentlemen? Sure. Yeah, so they, after Country Comfort, on this day, what, what day of the week are we in now? Uh, that was Thursday, the 11th of June. So after they nailed down Country Comfort, they tried Amarina during the same session, but again, unsuccessfully. Oh, yes, that's um, right. And I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder if it's possible that there is a version of Amarina that has Caleb and Barry Morgan and Herbie Flowers and yeah. so on. I've never seen any evidence of that, but they gave it a shot. That would be really interesting to hear, wouldn't it? Well, they got three minutes and 35 seconds into it, so they actually recorded it. They just weren't happy with the results, apparently, or Gus wasn't. Well, you never know. 50 years from now, I'm sure there'll be a, not a seven inch, not a 10 inch, but a eight and a half inch. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Then we've got five gigs in the intervenum. That's a word I've just made up. Uh, Narbeth. Anyone got any clue where Narbeth is? I guess I'm talking to Peter here. Never heard of it. Never heard of Narbeth. Queen's I'm going to check it because that just doesn't sound like a place to me. Oh, it's in Wales. It's a town in Wales. How is it? Pembrokeshire. This was the grand dance at Queen's Hall, Narbeth. Uh, chart and top of the pop star Elton John with his backing group, former <laughs> members of the Spencer Davis group, supported by Spinning Wheel. I feel like there might be more gigs here that we're not seeing as well, because you've got Saturday the 13th mm-hmm. in Narbeth, and then Wednesday the 17th at the Lyceum Ballroom in London. Right. And then by Friday, they're off to the Swedish Festival of the Midnight Sun thing. Right. And then the Hampstead gig that he did at Westfield College was the following Sunday, the 24th. 21st, sorry. And then 24th at York University. There's just a lot of gaps there. Well, the man needs to sleep for Pete's sake. Well, these are a young band. They're trying to get out there and play. It's interesting, your observation, because... A normal person would have days off. But when you're talking about Elton, and certainly at this time, if somebody at Rocket emailed me tomorrow morning and said, John, here's a secret that we've just never told you, but there are in fact five Elton Johns, (laughs) I would totally not be surprised. Yeah, me too. And if you go back to this time that we're talking about, when his career is on the tarmac and really ramping up and taking off, with performances and sitting in on sessions that we talked about that weren't his own and everything, it's almost like a shock when we see some empty dates on his diary. Mm. And he may have been doing session work. We don't know, do we? Yes, exactly. There, there was a lot of that going on at the time. We have got a session which was on the 25th of June. I don't know. if Do you yeah. know, Peter, who this was for? Yeah, this was Stuart Henry. Oh, we mentioned it before. Yeah, that was recorded in Aeolian Hall in Studio 2 at BBC. Is that building still around? Well, I, th- I think the building might exist, but the BBC don't own it. Mm. Um, I mean, that was transmitted in July, and, and then it was repeated in February 71. 
This is quite a confusing one because it was on the repeat of February 71 that they added your song to it, which I presume is because, well, the single had been out a while by then. Yes. But they added your song to it, but it wasn't a session recording of your song. It was a mix of the actual track without all the strings on it. It's actually the one that's on the deluxe edition. Yeah, that's right. They were pulling the wall, weren't they? Yeah, but they obviously just bolted it onto the end of these four numbers. Country Comfort, Take Me to the Pilot, and Marina, and Burn Down the Mission. And then to make it more confusing for those people trying to track down BBC sessions, they took the Burn Down the Mission version and edited it down to a just over three minute version for another rebroadcast. Oh so, but it is, the same, it is the same version. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's the same version. So it's all those kind of things that throw everyone when they're trying to work out what's what, because they, they just kept changing it. Now, I mean, the Beeb obviously recycled a lot of their concerts. And then, of course, mm. you've got the other recycling, which is when they were on the Transcription Recording Union, or TRU discs, that were sent out to other broadcasters, where they would then overdub Brian Matthew, a, a well-known DJ in the UK, and piece bits of other concerts together. Make it feel like a radio show. Yeah, but it wasn't. They were all these Radio 1 sessions that we know about, just re-edited and overdubbed with his voice. That's some of our best sources for this material though, isn't it? Some of it, yeah. Although, I mean, the Stuart Henry exists and the original tapes of those exist. And, uh, do they? Yeah, three or four of these do. But yeah, the early stuff, like the Lady Samantha and Sales, primarily mm. come off disc. Mm. Yeah, you're right. That's the only way they've survived. I mean, there is a, there, there are tapes of Lady Samantha and so I've heard your tape of Lady yeah. Samantha. It's yeah. absolutely ballsy mm. as hell. Yeah, it's, it's from amazing. a different, it's from an earlier session. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Is it? Yes. We hadn't discussed that at the time. Mm. Yeah, that's why it sounds more ballsy than the other version. Wow. <laughs> it was only after we played that that I thought, hang on a minute, <laughs> this sounds different. And so I did my usual trick of synchronising them on my headphones. I figured one recording in one side and the other recording in the other side yeah. and synchronise them. And so you know that they're different if your head spins around 360 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. And then you look violently sick at the end of the... <laughs> and then you know that you've got a different version. <laughs> Because I think they did do Lady Samantha and Sales as a pair twice, didn't they? They did, yes. And that's why one's from one and one's from the other. Uh, how amazing. We've got to get that out there one day. Yeah, yeah. I think there is definitely a big unmet demand for the BBC sessions that we have. I think there's a strong sure, argument yeah, for them. Sure. You know, I mean, the only ones that really come out on the deluxe editions, and they haven't come out together, if you know what I mean. Like, right. this is all from this date. And also, there are better copies as well. I mean, you know, I'm an audio geek, but the quality of some of them that have gone out aren't really that great. I mean, they're not fantastic recordings, some of them. Anyway, most of them are mono, but, um, you know, there are better copies around, especially the, the Stuart Henry and also the next one, which is Bob Harris, later in 17. Well, someone needs to bring all this stuff together. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would be a wonderful project. Well, I know somebody who's got the tapes. Well, yeah. <laughs> Such a tease, Peter. <laughs> We're, gonna, we're, we're up to Tuesday, the 7th of July, where I've got the date of another session. Or is that the broadcast date? Yeah, that would be the broadcast date, yeah. And then more TV that Friday, Friday the 10th of July in Berlin. Yes, I believe that's one that was given to me by Ray Williams. Oh, then I've got that from you, sorry. And he doesn't have that as an exact date. He just says sometime around early July in Berlin, Germany. So let's not use the 10th as a certainty. 
and they played Water Song again, because even though, again, they're more than halfway through recording Tumbleweed, they are still promoting Border Song whenever possible. Yeah. yeah. And then a gig over in Sweden, and then he did some TV in Sweden as well. Again, so that's his second. I've got two separate Swedish visits. Well, yeah, I mean, are we including Festival of the Midnight Sun? Is that what you mean? Yeah. But that was the Festival of the Midnight Sun on June 19th, as I recall, was him sitting in. No, he played keyboards for Blue Mink on that. That was not an Elton John show. Did he not also play a set as well? Blue Mink gave him part of their set, as I understand. Oh, right, okay. Where he could play a, a couple of his own songs. And when I say couple, it could have been two, it could have been five. I, I don't know. With Blue Mink or not? Well, then that would have meant they would have had to have rehearsed them. And I'm not quite yeah. sure if they had the time leading up to do that. So either he did them solo or somehow Blue Mink backed him. Well, the bassist obviously knew some of yeah, the songs. Yeah, true. No, it's, yeah, it's entirely possible. So even though that's a Elton John performance, I'm not quite sure if that rises to the level of a full Elton John gig. He went to Sweden because he was hired to go to Sweden, because Blooming said, we will pay you to come here and sit in because our keyboardist can't do it or something. Oh, is that what he did? Something oh, like sorry, that. I yeah, about that. something right. in that neighborhood. Yeah, Which he had done previously, right? The, the whole two-month Scottish tour he did way back when for the band that With, I'm linking uh, the name on at the moment. I've forgotten the name, but they turned into Gentle Giants. Okay, yeah. So... This was not the first time he had been sort of... Uh, Piano for hire. Yeah, exactly, but, but live as opposed to studio work. So there's another big old gap, two whole weeks at least. So I'd love to know what they were doing during this time. Well, we've got the Warlock. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we could definitely talk about that for a moment. I've been reading my Nick Drake sort of biography recently called Remembered for a While. I think that's what it's called. And just being so sad about it. Sure. I mean, I think he had... the Really wonderful family. Have you ever watched any of the documentaries, yeah. either of you two? No, I've not. I like his family, but I find his friends quite tiresome in the <laughs> documentary. I, and and I feel like he was let down at times. I know it's a horrible thing to say. And the guy isolated himself and made himself unapproachable. And he was an unusual lad, especially when his mental health started to deteriorate. And his dad is convinced that, you know, and the psychiatrist as well that he had schizophrenia yeah mm. so this guy was always gonna have a tough life but oh it's a sad story such a sad story it's a shame i i feel it necessary somehow to to mention because the nick drake sessions are often referred to as the nick drake sessions and mm. then people move on from there and that's a little bit off in two different ways one is that it was the warlock label sessions right yeah. wasn't it yeah. So songs written by people other than Nick Drake. But also it infers that Nick Drake was a part of these sessions, and he was not at all. So this was no. Elton and uh, Linda Peters and other session musicians at the time recording publisher demos of Nick Drake songs and other songs by other artists on that label. Yeah, but he did quite a few John Martin songs as well, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's... Was there a Mike Heron one? Or yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Ed yeah. Carter... So you and I know that, but I just I just wanted sort of, that was for the audience. Yeah, it's a good point. I've seen, <laughs> it cracks me up, if you ever want to laugh, I'm sure I've said this to someone before, but if you, 
go on to YouTube and look at Elton's Day Is Done and those covers, and just people say, "How dare he? How dare <laughs> really, he do this?" The it's like they haven't got the context at all, no, and no. just really insulted that someone would take a fairly straight pop interpretation on these things. But actually, that's what he was. You know, paid someone to just do. literally asked him to yeah. do that. So yeah. leave the guy. Yeah, out. it wasn't just someone; it was the publisher. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. By the way, they were definitely done in July of nineteen seventy. Yeah. You can't pin it down any more than that. No, I've got a copy of it, and it's annotated on the copy, so definitely. What form is your copy of? White label vinyl pressing. I'm only aware of five. Wow. So where the rest went, I don't know. It's a bit like some sort of computer game. We need to go and collect them all. <laughs> some sort of giant white label power will come to being. <laughs> I've seen three in a room at the same time. Have you? <laughs> you, you live to tell the tale. Wow. I should have taken a photograph, really. Yes, exactly. Even the producer doesn't have them, does he? No, no, not at all. Joe doesn't have one? Oh, I thought he did. Okay. No. There was always some uh, argument about who played drums on it. Some people said it was Jim Capaldi, and other right. people said it was Jerry Conway. But I ah. don't know whether okay. anybody ever got to the bottom of that one. Hmm. But you don't know any of the other suggested musicians yes i do do you yeah simon nickel was guitar okay from fairport bass was pat donaldson i don't know him the engineer was john wood at chelsea sound technique studio but this guy i don't know the executive producer was brend ralphini but you don't have any actual credits on your record it has this information written on the sleeve handwritten Does it really but i can't verify whether that was there when it was released or whether it's somebody later on yeah but i've seen three copies and that information seems to correlate so they've all got that written on there have they there's parts on some discs and some on others really (laughs) that's what i've pieced together so far if you like when did you get your copy peter and how long were you searching for it probably the early 80s how did you come by it um it was another collector you don't see them very often there was one, I think, sold about a year and a half ago, wasn't there, on mm. eBay, was I there? think. Yeah, mm. yeah. How much did that go for, then? can't remember. I didn't look. <laughs> 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 I think they go for about a 1000 or something like that. It's been so bastardized on CD, It has, right? Yeah. I think there's only one CD that has it straight through, and then there's a bunch yeah. that sort of throw things around. Mm. I mean, the reason why I had three copies was to find the one that was in the best condition. Okay. And they all had their tracks that were good and those that were bad. So out of that, we managed to compile a really super copy mm. of the whole album. It's slightly challenged sonically, shall we say, at times. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's recoverable. Let's put it that way, with, with a mm. good transfer. So it sounds great now. I'll send you a couple of tracks if you want. Oh, Not all of them, but some of them. Yeah. Yes, please. I've just looked up my notes on Friends, actually, because, Neil, you were saying there was some question as to when that whole thing... Yeah, I've always wondered about the rock and roll songs when they were written. According to an interview he did in April 71, Friends was recorded and written in four weeks in September and October of... 1970. So, yeah, that would make sense, actually, because what he said, oh, where did I read? I read it in an interview fairly recently, was that they put the two songs on there as incidental music within the film that they were going to be using on their next album. That's what he said. Okay, that makes sense. And it's also when Indian Sunset was written based on what you said earlier on. Yeah, it's always possible that the lyrics and even the full songs were written before the sessions for, for Friends were done, but... Knowing Elton as we do, um, it's also very, very possible that it was all done just in, in one go. Yeah. Right, let's move on to the next session, which was a bit of a special one, Thursday, the 6th of August. 
so two different sessions. The first one was where to now St. Peter, and the second one was Anne Marina. Um, but I don't know times of day. Okay. So let's have a listen. I love my edit of this. And just listening to Caleb, he's just coiled up. And every now and again, the tension gets too much. And a little bit of funky guitar comes out and then he rings it back in again. And it just feels like he's ready to burst with these rhythmic flourishes every single moment that you want him to do it. If I wanted to play someone a song that proves that Elton is cool, it's this <laughs> song for me. This is the one that yeah, tells definitely. you well you're right to be an Elton John fan. Well so this is a Leslie guitar that Caleb is rocking. So uh, yeah. his yeah. electric put through a Leslie. And he's got a wire in there as well in the path. Uh, and he also has an acoustic guitar on this session. So this is the return mm. of Hookfoot. Whatever they were doing in the summer, they, they've stopped doing. And they're back in full force. Yeah. Let's listen to Caleb kick in here.
That is genius. Yeah. It's just amazing, isn't it? That's great, great stuff. 12th tape, also. Oh, who's that? What's all that? Sorry, that was me. I have to go to the back cave. <laughs> <laughs> That's where all the acetates are stored. <laughs> In the vault. Incredibly secure yeah. location. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. Did you say 11th take? A 12th take. In my head, I'm thinking, where are the other 11? Give them up, John. Yeah, sure. I, Come on. I, not like I've heard them or seen them, but but yeah. again, I would suspect that they didn't make it through all previous 11 takes. I'm sure there were yeah. a few false starts and so on. Having the Leslie in the path, that's yeah. definitely a novel Caleb thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wonder if that's Caleb or if that's Gus, because Gus liked his Leslie effects mm. on things. So maybe just a combination of the two. But no, no matter where you slice it, this is just a stellar, stellar piece of work. And then it took me a long time to realize that that was Dee and Nigel doing those very, 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 very high backing vocals. Yeah. It's a different sound, even for them, even with the backing vocals that they went on to do. Yeah, the reverb, yeah. It's, it's got a, the otherworldliness that we have in uh, Wide-Eyed and Laughing, it sort of yep, shares sure. a little bit of that sure. vibe, but nothing as funky and as smart as this one in the repertoire. It's weird and wonderful. It really is both. So am I correct in understanding that the original UK vinyl pressing of this has a different mix than what ended up on US pressings and later CDs and things? Yeah, there's a story that I'm trying to nail down a little bit more clearly. And that was, I remember in, in the 90s when they remastered all the albums for CD release. Metropolis Studios were tasked with finding the original masters of Tumbleweed and they discovered that they'd been lying in a basement store in New York since 1970 with the words do not use written on them. Oh my goodness, wow. And I believe, but I wouldn't quote me on this, I think this is how the original pressings of Tumbleweed have this slightly different version to the subsequent ones. But I haven't spent enough time on this to verify it. But I believe that's the source of the, of the difference, if you like. That's not at all mysterious. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm assuming they were sent over to the States to cut the uni masters and right. obviously never came back. Right, wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. I think it's early English ones and some uni ones as well, yeah. if I remember rightly. But yeah, the difference is in the double tracking on Elton's vocals in the chorus. And I feel that it's definitely not an improvement having the double tracking. It just detracts a little bit. And the other difference is in Caleb's guitar, particularly at the very beginning and at the very end, there is more in this mix. Right. I'm sure that the 5.1s actually have that more guitar. Yes, when I, when I spend time with this on 5.1, yeah, the, the thing that jumps out at me on this song is there are entire guitar parts that I hadn't heard before off yeah. the original vinyl or CD. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's all just fantastic. So obviously Gus did a fair amount of work in the mix to right. shape those, but it wasn't replicated. It's weird because the double tracking, it feels like an, it has to be an earlier version because of the fact that there's more guitar in there. That's true. But just think about it, if the horn version of uh, Greatest Discovery can be released in Germany, then anything could happen. Yes, right, <laughs> Portugal, wherever the hell it was. Yeah, right, exactly. There's no telling, is there? Yeah, 
Yeah. But yeah, I mean, thank God they stuck with this for 12 takes because it is just one of the standout tracks. And, it is. And I love your description of it, Neil. I just think it is a track that shows that Elton was cool. Yeah. If no one was aware of Elton John and wanted to hear the breadth and scope of his material, where to now St. Peter would be in that 10-song selection. It has, it has to be. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly rivals Come Down in Time as my favourite track, I think. Yeah, it's right up there. And the other interesting thing, I think of all the demos, the demo of um, St. Peter is probably the best, I think, because it's quite a different feel and it's quite a more delicate version of it. Yes. So yeah. so I, I really love that demo. It actually has um, appreciable differences in the chords, it does. doesn't it? Yeah. So the, the, the verse and the intro riff in the released version is uh, goes B, D, E... B, whereas the one on the demo, and, and I feel like on some of the covers as well, just goes B, D, E, and so it hangs there in an unresolved way. It doesn't go back to home, right. only for the beginning of the next measure. It's a big difference, and I, I prefer it with the resolution. I think it makes sense. But that demo has not been released, as I understand, right? Isn't it on the deluxe? Oh, maybe not. Why is it not on the jewel box, then? No, you're probably right. Oh, I really thought it'd come out. It falls into what you were saying earlier, Neil. It, it has a more wistful feeling about it. I don't know, it's very difficult to describe, but it, it mm-hmm. definitely has got a different tone to it than the release version. Mm. Or dreamy, I suppose, is the word. Yeah, you feel that you are sat on the blue canoe floating. Yes, exactly. You're out there with it. It may be in the released one, you've got some fairly unusual noises yeah. echoing across the lake, and you're wondering, yes. well, OK, do I want to relax? I don't feel <laughs> I want to relax. Get up, get up. Yeah. <laughs> It probably could have been another ballad, you know, it could have been another quiet song on the album. But obviously they decided to put the full Monty on it. Yeah, no, it's a really funky bit of music somehow. Yeah. It would have been fun to talk to Gus, Eyes to the Heavens, about this one as well, and, and I guess Caleb, yeah. as to is this one of the songs that they played out and developed over time, mm. for, or was this built in the studio? It feels very well developed, doesn't it? Um, you know, did Gus say this is a good song, but we need, you know, a punchier version of it? So that's maybe why they held it for Hookfoot to do. Uh, you know, there are lots of sort of questions about the gestation of this. We don't know when this one was written, do we? We haven't got any I don't think we do, at all. No. Yeah. Um, but this is the one also that, that we were just speaking about before that has Elton repeating the first line as the last line. And, and That's right, yeah. yeah. You know, we don't have the original lyric sheet for it, so it's hard to say if that's something that Bernie did, but it feels like that's something that Elton did. Yeah. It adds to the dreamlikeness of it, doesn't it? Just sort of floating away, just sort of whisting away, yeah. It's a great lyric from Bernie, I think. And another amazing title. He's such a good title writer. Yeah. Let's talk about that if we can, because, yeah, let's think back to when we first opened the gatefold and put the vinyl on the turntable. And the first thing that we did, of course, even before we dropped the needle, was look at the song titles. Mm. Right? So before we even took the cellophane off or whatever. And so many of them are so evocative. I think the big experience was the fact that you got this book with it. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. pretty generous, wasn't it? You've got this beautiful book with all the lyrics in it. And I can remember being really absorbed by that. And you're right, the first impression you get is looking at those titles and what they mean and where they're going. But to me, yeah. it was the whole package. It was so luxurious. It's quite lavish. Yeah. Quite lavish, you isn't know. it? I think yeah. I always slightly preferred Tumbleweed's 
packaging over Madman. It just feels a little bit more, yeah. more um, original. And yeah, it just matches the album better. And I've always been more of a lyric person than anything, so it's just lovely to have all the lyrics written out, which didn't always happen then. No. no. Not often. No, hardly ever. No. So yeah, it's another thing that Elton said during the taping of 171170, that the next song, I think he was going to play Country Comfort, he said the next song is off, you know, our next album, which has been held up for six years on, on the packaging. So, you know. Is that what he said? Yeah. On packaging? Yeah. <laughs> so that must have taken David Larkham a bit of time to put this all together after talking Dick James or whomever into the budget for something like that. It just wasn't done. Yeah, Dick James was pretty novel in some of his approaches, wasn't he? Or at least what he would agree to, rather. Yeah, I think Steve Brown and Dave Barkham and others were able to manage Dick, in a sense, even though Dick was technically managing the whole operation. Yeah. Yeah, I think they knew how to convince him that it was worth his while to spring for the staples involved or the glue or the whatever. I mean, just, you know, these these little things that we, in this mm. day and age, certainly take for granted. But back then, it was just like, what? Like like Peter just said, it's like you open this thing and it's like, wait a minute, I, there's, there's like a book of poetry in here almost, you know, yeah, and yeah. it's yeah. just remarkable. Anyway, shall we move on? We, okay. we haven't even moved a day to the following track recorded with a totally different band in what we imagine was the afternoon or the evening session of Thursday the 6th of August and this is the first outing of the killer trio with Caleb on the side (laughs) and I'm inclined to play quite a bit of this because it is just amazing oh yeah I've turned the guitar up a bit loads of detail into that little oh, I love this sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think this has got Leslie on it as well. Yeah it does, you're right. Oh, 
never really noticed it. That's brilliant. I love this verse. This is my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, it really gets punchy. This fast bit. It's a shame that obviously my mix really highlights Caleb and the piano as well, for that matter. No, I've never heard Caleb sound better. Yeah, but it doesn't do D any favours or Nigel, unfortunately, so they're a bit buried there. They are, but their work on the transitions between the verses and the choruses is what I locked in on just with that listening. Just a terrific way to move the song along again without getting in the way. Mm. This, this is a good band, Caleb D and Nigel, yeah? Yeah, this is the band that I wish had gone... To, I mean, I love the three. I adore 17, 11, 17. I think it's absolutely essential and really cool. And I think it probably wouldn't have happened in the same way had there been Caleb there, because he definitely, right. whatever you think, yeah, he is stealing the limelight somewhat. There's no way around that, musically at least. Hmm. It is very present on this album, isn't he? And there's an element of Elton the Star that must have found that hard. I never sensed that. I really never did. I could be way off. You could be right. But I I feel like had Hookfoot never got signed, let's say, I could envision a world where either Elton played with Hookfoot outright or played with Dia, Nigel, and Caleb, or mm. a combination of both. I Even back then, you know, obviously they were such good friends. I, 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 I'm not sure if I, if I agree with that. I think the egos did turn into a huge thing for the 75 band. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. But they're almost like different people. I mean, we almost yeah. are talking about different human beings at yeah. that point, just in that short period of time, both for Elton and Caleb and true. others as true, well. True, true. Looking at the track sheet for Emma Arena, uh, again, this is their second stab at this song. They did try it on June 11th with the other band. So this version, the drums are in stereo, bass, uh, guitar, and a Leslie guitar, two different tracks. Oh, okay. Piano is in stereo. And then there's the organ track and then there's another organ track that gus has scribbled in parentheses don't use <laughs> so we just need to keep going to different european countries and listening to their versions of this <laughs> album because it's got to be there <laughs> yes, somewhere right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um who is on organ elton yeah. Yeah. that marks it out somewhat doesn't it that's yeah not typically the case not often i mean he certainly did it on a bunch of those dick james demos that just came out on jilt box but not not as a habit no this is right up there peter isn't it yeah and what and what a fantastic track to come out of uh, love song you know 
I mean, love songs just all quiet and it's lulled you into this <laughs> lovely, dreamy, sea sort of sound. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. suddenly mm-hmm. Amarina mm-hmm. blasts through your speakers. I always remember that when I first heard it. I like they fell off my chair. Yeah, you, it's a really <laughs> typical Elton intro as well. Do, 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 yeah, yeah right, like right. chord-wise, and then it just... Yes. Yeah, it's like a launch control is pressed at that point, isn't it? And the whole thing goes mental and then of course it's also sandwiched we're talking old soldiers where it drops back right. down again right. yes. so it was a superbly well placed track in the listing of the album in the order of play because it just lifts it from being too morose mm. and too quiet mm. you know well i say it just blew me out of the chair when i first heard it i always remember that beautifully recorded yeah the band sounds so good he knew how to play that studio didn't he yeah, I mean, one of the things we haven't mentioned is, is the sound quality of Tumbleweed and, of course, the Trident Studios. I mean, Trident was renowned in the early 70s and late 60s for its sound quality. It had its own dedicated design mixing desks, and mm. they just captured this warm, very full, wonderfully open stereo recordings there. I mean, most of the big albums were recorded there, and they all stand the test of time now, you know. Black Sabbath and whatever. I was watching that David Bennett piano thing about the Trident piano Mm. on YouTube. And he went through a list of some of the songs that were recorded there. I've mentioned this before in the podcast. And and, and as soon as I heard that You're So Vain by Carly Simon was recorded there, you just think, oh, of course it was. Because you can, it's just, it's in the timbre of everything. It's there. You just think, oh yeah, that's why that's special, that song. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a magical studio. Shame it's not there now. Speaking about the track sequence, Amarina yeah. was not originally going to be in that location up until again the eleventh hour. Originally, yeah, that was switched. Wasn't side it? two was going to be Saint Peter Love Song, and then Son of Your Father was going to be in here, and then Talking Old Soldiers. And I don't think that would have had the same impact on side two, would it? No, that was, was a good, good call. call. I think that change, really good call. It definitely gives it the energy it needs, but it's so original as well. Yeah. Which is why it ended up being used in Dog Day Afternoon, isn't it? It just really used very is well in so Dog evocative Day. in there. It just feels like it was always made for that. Yeah, it's almost like Tiny Dancer and uh, Almost Famous. Yeah. And the whole tie-in with, with Ray Williams' goddaughter is really interesting. And it's sort of come full circle in a way. So the, the story is, is that Ray Williams' wife was pregnant at the time. And Elton and or Bernie said to Ray, if it's a girl, uh, and if you name her Amarina, we will write a song called Amarina. I think that's that's the sequence. Of I just that. wonder if they'd have named her something else, would they have also had to write the song called that? And it's like, whatever it is, even if it is Zambezi right. X53. I know, a lot of girls called that. <laughs> and that's one of Elton's better outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think clearly it would not have crossed Ray's mind at all ever to name his daughter or anybody else in the world Amarina. So it, it took him off guard, but he talked his wife into the idea and it worked out well. And now 50 years later, on her most recent birthday, Elton was nice enough to send her a video message saying hello to her and I miss you and you know, I think about you and, and and so on. It was really, really nice. She put it up on her social media as oh, well, actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sweet. Just that is really, lovely. It's a really nice little sort of okay. video card 
in honour of her 50th birthday. We'll never know what it's like to be named after a Tumbleweed Connection song, except Peter, of course, who does know uh, what it's like yeah, to be. I am a saint. <laughs> You're a saint and also Peter Song. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Peter Song as well. This guy is well respected yeah. by Alvin yeah. Burney. I got Dear John. I'm not quite sure how I feel. It's a fine <laughs> song, but the sentiment is not fantastic. Exactly. <laughs> right, um, I, lyrically, this is an interesting one. And it's another one I spoke about um, in my Bernie episode. And I was wrong again. So there's a theme here. Because I'd said that he'd got this one written by about September 69. But I, I'm, I was way off with that. Um, it's, it's much later, isn't it? But it is quite a mature sexy love song from Bernie in a way that some of the earlier character songs don't really hold you. As I said in that episode, even Lady Samantha being a a good uh, character song, but doesn't feel particularly original. Whereas Amarina, as a sort of stonesy loll about love song, is pretty special, isn't it, lyrically? Yeah, it is. Lots of very sensual vocabulary in this mm. one. Just like night jars, I'm going to ask you, what the hell is a lusty flower? Yeah, no, that's a good one. Well, a flower is being inherently lusty as it does its whole, look at me, Mr. B, with my incredibly <laughs> okay. right. beautiful infrared visible spectrum stuff that only you can see. That's fantastic. Okay. Thank you. You've educated me twice already. I feel like there might be someone for whom that's quite sexy in the audience. It's not working for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got to cater for every single person out there. That's the, what I've learned in podcasting, you see. Your description was about a dozen words long, and, and Bernie got it in too. So I think cheers to him for trimming it down. It is quite economical. and it, It's not a million miles away from Mellow, is it, that we hear a couple of years later? Exactly right. At the Stones, yes, but again, this is to me the Van Morrison song. I think Elton has mentioned that as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he has. Especially in his vocal performance, but also in the sort of arrangement and the song structure. It's very, very Van Morrison. Yeah. It sounds a little bit Led Zeppelin to me. Oh. There's elements in there, I think. And also the lyric, of course, you know, with the juice running down my leg and all that stuff that Led Zeppelin used to sing about. Oh, did they? It makes you wonder whether they oh. were, um, you know, influenced at all by... Led Zeppelin too. That's a good question. Yeah, it came out in 69, yeah. late 69. They definitely will have had that and played it at length. Yeah, it's a huge album. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah, Possibly. Yeah, I don't know. Point. I mean, it's not a heavy metal track, but it certainly has that power. Yeah, it's, it is like a power trio with Caleb a plus on top. But again, as we said before, the dynamics are so wonderfully built, and that's what Led Zeppelin was all about, yeah. taking blues songs or riffs and things and just... yeah dynamicing the hell out of them. Yeah, and it's got that power drumming, you know, and it bursts right, right, into right. life. It really yeah. hits, which is what Bonham did in the Led Zeppelin tracks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, we've established that this recording of Amarina was done a couple of weeks after Elton, Nigel and Dee played it on Sounds of the 70s. Oh, that's right, yeah. And that earlier yeah. version really lacks a bit of sparkle for me. It does. Hasn't got anywhere near the complexity. I don't blame him because he's just trying to do it there and then. But the complexity in the piano isn't there. And some of the organisation of the bass part just hasn't quite happened yet, I feel. So two weeks well spent working through that or whatever. Yeah, there's a real difference there. I wonder how many takes we don't know for this, do we? We don't. Shame. 
because it feels like it was pretty well fought for, this uh, compromise and balance that you get between Elton and Caleb in particular. There's a lot of ideas, but they all settle down somehow without getting in each other's way. No, those, those are great guitar lines. I, I feel like it was never really nailed that well live. I've got, a, is it Swing Auditorium? His version is quite good, but the uh, 171171, they flub a bit and it hasn't got the energy. Not comparatively, no. Mm. I mean, it, it works in the room. You know, the audience response to Amarina in 171170 is quite bright and loud and boisterous. Yeah. I wonder what they found was the issue with it, though, because it never really did get played a whole lot, did it? Right, yeah, it's it's a good question. It makes you wonder whether or not, because it was towards the end of this series of sessions, whether they'd suddenly found some new energy or something. I know they'd locked together so much better because, you know, coming up is the Bob Harris session that was done on BBC. Oh, and, yeah. And, and Bad Side the Moon on there, wow, you know, it hits. It's got that power drive that the Amarina track's got. Yeah. And that was only, you know, what, a few days, a week after? A week after, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder whether or not they were just in that zone at that particular moment, because that that session for Bob Harris is pretty powerful. date was that recorded that session uh 13th 13th of august so is that at the playhouse in london is that right that's the playhouse theater yeah what else did they do border song uh country comfort and my father's gun none of those have been properly released have they they've not come out on any of the deluxes i don't think so no but they are on your sort of average hissy live at the bbc boots i think one or two tracks are on uh, elton at the b uh, I don't know if you've got that, that programme that was broadcast in 1984. Uh, Actually, My Father's Gun is out on the Tumbleweed Deluxe. Oh, is it? Sorry. Oh, is that on the Deluxe one, is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's so hard to keep all this stuff straight, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a shame not to have the BBC sessions brought together and written about. Sure. No, it is. And it'll be a nice tidy project if, if it ever comes up. You know, it'll be a nice to finish. Except for that digging my grave oh. that is that's the spanner in those works that's for sure that's the one that peter won't tell us that he's got <laughs> no definitely i've been looking for 50 years for that, <laughs> and i've never found a copy of it no yeah. um, this was a solo session wasn't it i think it was do you know who the producer was for that one then uh, yeah that's the peter carr one it was john peel's night ride and valhalla valhalla lady what's tomorrow and hi anton Oh. And the scaffold as well. And that's all solo, right? The scaffold. I believe so. I can't confirm that. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I spoke to Peter Carr. I tracked him down. Had a long conversation with him, but no, he doesn't have it. Mm. He doesn't have any real recollection of it. Mm. Real shame. That's a document. Uh, yeah, it's gone. Yeah. 
Yeah. Never say never, but it seems highly unlikely at this stage, doesn't it? It does. Well, one of the distinctive things about all the BBC uh, sessions before 73 on radio is that I've not actually heard any what I call off-air recordings, people who recorded mm-hmm. them at home. Mm-hmm. I've not heard any with the intro and outro by the DJs, you know, and that's very, very unusual. I mean, maybe they exist. I've certainly not come across They certainly yet. exist for Beefheart, I can tell you mm-hmm. that for free. Yeah, and most artists do. Most people taped it off the radio, you know, mm. so... And the very fact it's a John Peel sure. session, even at that time, you think there must yeah. be someone who's I out know. there that's recorded a lot of them. Right, right. Yeah. What's great about that is then it confirms exactly what was broadcast. Right. Because most information we have is from the BBC's archives. And that may be what was recorded, but we don't actually... Right. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's true. possible that there's some errors in it. Um, so, you know, to confirm, if you could hear a live recording off the broadcast, then you'd know what went out. Yeah. So, yeah, it's but annoying. Even if you weren't a fan of Elton John back then, you were a fan of John Peel. He yeah, had his own exactly. yeah. following. Right. And there are, yeah. even then, even back in 68, there were some pretty devoted John Peel acolytes out there. Oh, my God, there were. Sure. sure. Yeah. Oh, I've bought hundreds of reels of tape of people who've copied John Peel sessions and earlier ones on the hope, just the Right, right. That one of them might be, but now I've got every artist you can imagine. Everything but. 69 to 71, <laughs> but not Elton. All these yeah. Uriah Heap fans out there at home are oh, like, yeah. oh my I, God. <laughs> oh, I can, I, can, I can do sessions of Mundo, really, but unfortunately not the ones we want. Yeah. Peter Thomas can be reached at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is always the danger for Peter coming on the podcast. Yes, yes that does happen. But I mean, it's great. I mean, it's, it's nice that people are interested and it's nice to share your hobby. I mean, that's what I always think. You know, it's, it's, it's a lovely part of doing it. Yeah, it's not so nice in isolation, is no, it? Doing this yeah, sort of stuff. It's nice to share it like we do, you know, yeah. and that's the pleasure of it. It's a great way to close the sessions, Amarina, because we have, in a sense, and this is sort of alluding to to what Neil was just saying, we've transitioned to the new band. Yeah. So this was the last song recorded for Tumbleweed, and it was the first song recorded with Dee and Nigel. And even though Madman would not include Dee and Nigel, it would take another album to get there. This is sort of the beginning of the transition, I think. And again, August 6th, having them do these sessions, I'm sure this is when they put the backing vocals on Country Comfort and Where To Now, St. Peter. Mm. Yeah, I keep wanting to mention this about Where To Now, St. Peter. They never really played it live, which really bums me out, as you Americans would possibly (laughs) say. Not in years. (laughs) But I was bugging both of you over this recently because I really wanted to put a live three-piece Where To Now because there's a reference to it in a setlist.fm set list in early 71 i think where they played it but we don't have any recordings until solo times do we which is a shame i think i certainly don't have all of elton's set lists in my database but i have where to now st peter's played 51 times what's your earliest uh so feb 371 from the bbc ah which is the magically weird top of the pops where they played three songs yeah, right. And then uh, March 3rd, 1971, uh, at Royal Festival Hall. Which doesn't circulate unbelievably. Then there's the jump, not until 1977. Yeah, so I've got that in one other gig that isn't those ones that you described there, if you search on setlist.fm. Okay. And then he revisited the song joyfully, gleefully, 
lovely because I was at the gig uh, for the birthday show at Madison Square Garden on March 25th, 2007. Yeah, by which time he was not taking the uh, the high road with the vocal, but is doing the, the lower alternation. To be at that show at Madison Square Garden in, in 2007 was a fan highlight for me. And when you bought the program, uh, inside there was a set list, All right. you know, unusual. So you could see what you were faced with. Yeah, but I intentionally didn't. Because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have the surprise be spoiled. I think I'd do the same. And he opened with 60 Years On. We all saw that coming. And yes. then he played Madman Across the Water, which was fine. We'd heard that, you know, a number of times before live. And then the third song is Where To Now, St. Peter. Oh, wow. and, and that's when Jaws started dropping. <laughs> you could separate the real fans just by looking around the room from the casual fans who just went. It's like, oh, my God, this yeah. is this is incredible. Yeah. Where to now St. Peter for the first time in how many years with a band? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one day I expect to find a 71 three-piece Where to now St. Peter, but I do think there's a reason why it wasn't played out a whole lot and it probably just didn't work that well, maybe. Yeah, maybe not. It would have been a tough one to pull out. So then we've got the Crumlin gig, which was the day after the recording of that BBC session that we were just talking right. about, which has got a whole story around it, right. which I'm sure most listeners of the podcast would have some sort of an idea of. And then a week off, or almost a week and a half off, and then Troubadour. going to the country that he'd just written a, an entire album about. In this time between finishing the sessions for Tumbleweed and going to America, He's playing out a little bit, as we just said, and he's keeping his eye on the charts because uh, Border Song is trying to crack and stick, especially in the American charts. He probably knows that his next project is to write some songs for the Friends movie, mm. and he's already started probably thinking about songs for Men. So, you know, not time off as you or I would want it necessarily. No. When you think of how the pressure was ramping up and then how the weirdness of success was starting to fall around them. It must have been very hard to keep the focus on the music at that time. I think so. I think this whole two albums, two plus albums a year yeah. and every possible tour in, especially of America, in the interims, it, to their credit, everyone's credit, they locked into that really quickly. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe in a sense they had to, but that could have gone wrong in any number of ways just the sheer pace of it and again trying to figure out which way is up sometimes and yeah. what album are we working on and what's next and and who wants to talk to me in this little city in america that i'm now in that i've never heard of you know so all the press stuff all the recording all the live gigs it went from zero to 100 really really quickly obviously mm. but it just happened so naturally didn't it mm. thank god for youth yeah so let's scoot back. Let's do a little dainty pivot back to have a think about the process of choosing songs for this album, because there is quite a few, one of which comes out on the jewel box, um, quite a few songs that were in contention. Um, and you can argue as to whether or not they were in contention for Elton John, the second album as well. But there's a few here, and some of them are obvious aren't they? They're real Western songs. Yeah. Well, there's two of them. Should we do uh, Rolling Western Union or shall we do All the Way to El Paso? Should we do El Paso first? Yeah. Let's have a little listen. Caught me a bus early today, as if for my dinner time. 
Packed my case on the early ship And I left this shack behind Oh, I said I left this shack behind You may think I've done wrong The police may think so too But I'm sick and tired of this crumbling life I said I'm doing what I gotta do Lord, I said I'm doing what I gotta do Goodbye to Rachel Ann Tell her that I have to go Tell her she can follow my track That she wants All the way down to El Paso Singing all the way down All the way down to El Paso Yeah I wasn't aware of this track Until it came out on Ooh, it was on the Tumbleweed Deluxe, wasn't it, John? No. I think, actually, for some reason, this came out on the Elton John That's so bizarre. It was, yeah, it was. As I was saying, I was thinking, that's wrong. It was a new one to me. Was it a new one to you, Peter? No. Been kicking around for quite a while. Well, I don't know whether it's been on any bootlegs, but I'd certainly had it yeah. since the 70s. With Thank You, Mama. Oh, so they were together? Yeah, and both of those sound tumbleweedy to me. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised when they came out on the uh, the Black Album. Deluxe, yeah, Thank You, but... Mama's on on the Black Album one as well, which is yeah. just yeah. strange. I would have been more inclined to put Sisters of the Cross on the uh, Black Album one, personally. Right, exactly. Because at least you could imagine it having some sort of a treatment, whereas this yeah. is always going to be a bandy song, isn't it? Yeah, and of course the third one is Going Home. Yeah. That also sounds tumbleweedy as well. Yeah. It, it doesn't sound like the Elton John albums. No, none of these do. But it feels like maybe, at the time, Universal, Rocket, whoever, were trying to meet things out across the two releases, and actually there's a more of a weight of tumbleweed-ready tracks than there are Elton John-ready ones. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, maybe. But it just makes the story more confusing, doesn't it, in the end? It's confusing enough as it is without stuff coming out on the wrong album. Well, that's what iTunes is for. You just you just create your own playlist. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. true. I mean, we can start to really do yeah. that now. And this would go there. I, no, I'm not a fan of this one. I would definitely not push for someone to do an arrangement or to stick this on the album, mainly because it just sticks around in the same key the whole time and just doesn't do a lot for me. Yeah, it doesn't go to anywhere other than El Paso. Yeah, no no stops, to, <laughs> straight to El Paso. <laughs> and certainly Bernie's most direct homage to the song he always says is one of the first that really caught his ear as a youth. Which song, sorry? Marty Robbins. Uh, the song is called El Paso. Okay. Um, yeah, so anyway, it's not at the top of my list. I don't think I would have spent a lot of time considering it. Has anyone got an, a strong opinion on this, Peter? No, no, no. no. Let's have Rolling Western Union. Are you rolling? Are you rolling, Western Union? Are you rolling? Yeah.
a very tumbleweed, isn't it? I mean, that's instantly a problem, isn't it? Because this is almost exactly the same as... It sounds like my father's going to me. It must have predated it in that sense. It feels like it did, yeah. It just got upgraded musically. To be fair, the intro to Amarina, to me, is the same as the intro to Where to Now St. Peter. They're very similar to me. But yeah, they, they have a similar reflex going on. Yeah, right, exactly, right. So he was not above revisiting themes and so on. Yeah, we've got a few more examples of that from the jewel box as well. There's a few things where you think, oh, I'm sure that turned into something else. Most definitely, yeah. I'd like to collect them together, actually. We've got enough now to make an episode out of it, maybe. This is a good ending to a chorus, isn't it? It's not a bad chorus. could see this one doing something on the album. Yeah, I mean, either this or Into the Old Man's Shoes, again, would have been probably the last ones taken off yeah. if this had been developed. But yeah, I, I think this is a, a great song. I'm really glad we found it for Jewelbox. I had never heard it until Peter was nice enough to share a little bit of it with me. And then we found it in, in the archives at the, the record label. And it's a great addition to the Tumbleweed project experience. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Part of that story, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It really fills it out nicely. I know it's uh, it's got its debut on Jewelbox, but I could have sworn that it was on the Tumbleweed Deluxe, and I've right. heard it before. It's it's fairly well circulated, this one, isn't it, Peter? It is, I think. Well, it's on bootlegs, anyway, in some god-awful quality, yeah. yeah. One of my jobs on Jewelbox was to make sure that we weren't releasing something that had already come out yeah. In, in, yeah. in this case. And I had to triple-check this one to make absolutely sure, I, I would get up and go to my collection and pull out Tumbleweed Deluxe and look at it and then send an email saying, nope, it hasn't been released. And then the next day I would get up and go to my collection and pull out Tumbleweed <laughs> yeah. Deluxe. It's a surprise, <laughs> Just, isn't it? Yeah, because it really feels like it was on that, on that project. <laughs> You could put together almost all the tracks from Tumbleweed Connection on demo. Uh, missing one, I believe, obviously missing Love Song, but also... Uh, St. Peter, again, has not been released officially. That's what we were saying, yeah. yeah. We can't have them all officially, but we've got all of those tracks. Yes. And then you can have another little EP of these songs that didn't make it as well. It's quite a nice set of demos for Tumbleweed. I mean, then, again, if you go to the Olympic sessions yeah. and sort of pull out all the different versions of the early yeah. demos of some of those songs, you know, you're up to, you know, 25 songs or so. But yeah, I think Rolling Western Union is, is a cut above all the way down to El Paso. Mm. Should we go for another one? Yeah. yeah. As you, you've mentioned it a moment ago, let's hear Thank You, Mama. Hey. 
every Sunday was spent with him, with a capital H. Mm. Bernie delivered a fairly religious lyric and Elton turned it into a gospel song, like a good boy. (laughs) (laughs) Bernie was writing a few religious songs at the time, In the Morning, if it really is him that wrote that. Skyline Pigeon has a religious vibe in the background there, doesn't it? It's obviously got a church. And then... Yeah, this one's quite explicitly religious. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've always liked this style for Elton. This seems like right in his wheelhouse. Mm. You know, as opposed to Burn Down the Mission where it's five songs in one. This is one song in one. Yeah. And done extremely tightly and extremely well. It's not a bad one, actually. No. I don't mind it. A, a decent end to the chorus. Nice to hear him in his upper registers in the early days. Right. And it's some solid piano playing. Yeah, you could see it going in all sorts of directions once you get guitars involved, but as it is as a piano demo, it's quite special, isn't it? Is it this one that reminds me of Hercules? Yeah, the intro. Yeah, never thought of that. Yeah, you're right. It's really similar. Um, So this is one that they were happy to dust it off and turn it into something new. But yeah, this ain't bad as it is, is it? It's all right, it's got some... Boogie woogie going on, hasn't it? Yeah, it was good enough for Simon Dupree in the big sound, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. They didn't, although you say that, they didn't actually release it, did they, at the time? Not at the time, no. So maybe it wasn't good enough. (laughs) (laughs) It's good enough for a (laughs) quarter. On second thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) But then in 2004, yeah, those of us who dig deep in the vaults for any hint of an Elton associated song but that's who we were talking about before as well with the that's right yeah, so yeah. I don't mind this one and I could see it on the album actually if yeah. you stack it up against Son of Your Father Son of Your Father's a bit more interesting lyrically for sure yeah I don't know to me this doesn't really quite rise to that level I would sort of no, put this I mean, in the same category as all the way down to El Paso it's not bad it just doesn't engage me as a listener a whole lot it's interesting, again, with the theme of Fathers and Guns, the other theme on this album is certainly sort of traveling. Yeah. Mm. So mm. going to El Paso, going home, uh, arriving somewhere. Yeah, last to arrive. Yeah. You know, uh, getting on trains and a couple of the songs in, in the album lyrics and so on. So, yeah, there's a premonition of the travel they were about to engage on mm. for the rest Not of true. their damn lives, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's move on to the last one. I haven't got uh, Last to Arrive, actually, in my tracks that I've prepared mm-hmm. here. But I've prepared my favourite one um, of all of this, which, again, like I said before, it doesn't really feel like a Tumbleweed one, but it did come out on the Tumbleweed Deluxe. And let's see, Peter, were you aware of an actual recorded Sisters of the Cross no. before it came out? No, that... Yes. That so, I mean, that we, we found one. Cool. At the end of the programme, we finally found one that <laughs> hit Peter between the eyes. So you could in. talk about this one as the same as us. You're almost like a normal person now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going a bit too far, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was blown away by this. I loved it. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I knew it existed, but I didn't know there was an actual recording. So, yeah, that was a real find, wasn't it? And it's a good song. It sort of has a Carol King feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I can see why it wasn't included. I'm more excited than everyone else about this song. I just thought it was amazing. I'm surprised they didn't do something with it, but maybe the lyrics are just a bit awkward. Mm, maybe. I do also sort of agree with you, Neil, that maybe this would have been more of an outtake of the Elton John album than the Tumbleweed album. 
Yeah, it doesn't really belong with any tumbleweed stuff, but probably doesn't really belong with the Elton John stuff either, really. You may have put your finger on why they didn't use it. Yes. How true. Can we hear a bit of it? Yeah, it's all right. Sorry, it's just existing in my imagination at the moment. Hang on. <laughs> Here we go. about the Carol King tone on the piano, if nothing else. Yeah. It sounds like Elton walked in during a downtime during Tapestry and used that piano with yeah. that equalization. Yeah, a Tapestry hadn't come out then, had it, really? So I, I, I call it a Carol King pastiche, but isn't Tapestry 1970? Is it mid-70? I think you're right. And again, I would I would actually put this in the Lauren era category again, even though it doesn't float around quite as much as some of her most uh, adventurous work. It, mm. it has that feel to me, that's something Laura would have done. February 71, sorry. Yeah, February 71 is when it came out, Tapestry. Yeah, so he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have known. No, so it didn't sound like a pastiche. Something about it makes it sound like that. You would say Laura Nero. I would say something. I listened to some Laura Nero and I was blown away. So. Um, anyone in the previous episode will have known that I didn't even know how to pronounce her name at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> no, she uh, wrote hits that shouldn't have been hits, honestly, for Free Dog Night and Whomever. They were just so against the grain. Yeah. I hear her in this Sisters of the Cross just a little bit. Mm. To me, this is a song in search of a hook. Yeah. That's true. When you're getting halfway through the chorus now and you're thinking, hmm. Can we have the payoff? And it doesn't quite... But then you have got that really cool little keyboard part that comes after the chorus, which itself is a bit hooky, I think. Yeah, it's as close to the hook as there is. Yeah. And not that every song needs a hook. It just doesn't feel 
finished yet. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I wasn't sharing your enthusiasm, Neil. Oh. <laughs> I do I do love the piano work and I do love the style of the song, but yeah. it doesn't feel very satisfying somehow. It doesn't go anywhere, I suppose, is how I feel. Yeah, I can see that. But I think probably out of all of the ones that were not included on any albums, this is quite a strong one. Yeah. Even despite that. Yeah. There's something in there, isn't there? Yeah. But I think they made some pretty sound choices. Some well-reasoned decisions were made in the sequencing of this album. Yeah. I would just say the other outtakes that we just listened to are all basically vamps. Mm. You know, Thank You Mama has the vamp. Uh, I'm Going Home has the vamp. All the way down to El Paso has a vamp. Yeah. And this one, Sister of the Cross, isn't a vamp. It feels like a pop song in... in more constructed. Yes, yeah. more constructed, yeah. exactly. I always felt that Bad Side the Moon should have been on Tumbleweed. In what sort of state, though? In the Paul Buckmaster freakout state? Well, no, probably more in the raw live version. Yeah, like that three-piece. The Bob Harris version. I mean, that really has that feel to it. Yeah. Uh, And the lyric kind of might fit a bit, I suppose. You know, it's a bit weird. But, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, we have have the moon here in America. Yeah. The, the other weird thing that I picked up when I looked through, I, I had a quick look through my tapes and everything, and it's come up with some other tapes that have been shown to me, is that the song A Little Love, as a demo, appears in some of these demos. And that is a real lightweight pop song. Mm. But it always seems to appear around the going home, thank you, mama, sonny, your father. Mm. It always seems to be in association with those tracks, is all I can say. You'd want to put it way earlier, wouldn't you? You would, and that's why I don't understand. You have to assume some logic in what can be found on what tape with what, or else you've got nothing. Well, not always. It's very difficult, though, because, you know, if you're getting copies of copies and people have grouped them, you yeah. know, you, you don't always know the heritage of some of these tapes. I'm always mm. very reluctant to just take it on face value, but there's a few that they appear together on. So, I, you know, I wonder whether it was a contemporary song at the time. Peter, you said a little love. Which a little love? Is it a little love goes a long way or there is still a little love? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. There is still a little love for me. Is that what it's called? In your heart. That's the one, yeah. You'll notice I'm declining to sing it because <laughs> you will lose all your listeners. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. like you say, it's a bit of a lightweight one. It, is. it doesn't have any of the tumbleweedy depth. So no. yeah, I wonder where they were coming I from with that. It may be okay. a red herring. And we love red herrings here at the podcast. We definitely do. But you don't want to spread them as fact. That's the most important thing. No, exactly. There's a lot of things out there that get perpetuated just through laziness aren't there yes it is one of the most difficult things i think is that there are so many people that attribute certain you know like a demo is not a demo it's a bbc session or Mm. vice versa and they they mix and match tracks to produce something that looks like something unique and you know when you spend some time with it you realize no they're the same old tracks that have just been re-edited together and it's a shame that that happens but i mean it's part of trying to find the truth really of what was what yeah i mean it's not just elton i mean i think that goes on with all collecting sure but i i don't like to spread anything that's vague Uh, i like to make sure that it's it's correct before you start Mm. saying this is what happened and this is the date or whatever because it all gets distorted yeah i find whenever i make a strong statement about anything i'm usually wrong (laughs) (laughs) so lads where are we what's the standout track on tumbleweed connection 
uh, I think we're going to say the same thing, um, Peter and I. It's come down in time for me, every time. Yeah, but with where to now, St. Peter, very, very close second, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I would have to agree. I mean, I think the weakest song on the album is Country Comfort, and that's still just a final track. So this is yeah. a, a tremendously consistent record yeah. uh, thematically and in every way. And the sound of the record as well is very coherent sound. Yeah. Yeah, and if you took out Come Down in Time, that's the one you would miss the most. It would be much lesser an mm. effort for it. Yes. Whereas yes. you took out maybe even any other track, it wouldn't be as missed as much. So yeah, I agree. Come Down in Time is... is Ironically, the heart of the album, considering it's the thematically least appropriate right, exactly. song on the album. It's weird, isn't it? It is a bit of an irony. And to me, it's, it's a wonderful reminder of Paul's work again it's just uh, even before his passing but most certainly ever since his passing it's one of the songs that I go to first when I want to think of Paul yeah he's got a very deft touch hasn't he on there it's very delicate yeah, it's, beautiful. Yeah. it's interesting to me that this album actually did better than one might remember in terms of chart position so it peaked at number two in the UK wow yeah yeah and then a, a number five in the US. And it stayed at number five for two weeks. It didn't make it in the UK until after your song, though, did it? I think. No. Right, there was a lag. It wasn't like people that were desperately waiting for Tumbleweed. But I, I think the news obviously went back, you know, the whole Dylan Diggs Elton thing. So there was some real movement here in the UK as well, just as there was in the States. And it's rare that both our countries sort of line up on albums. We Sometimes the ones that are successful here aren't there and vice versa. Yeah. Mm. But these are only three positions away from each other. And again, without the strength of a single, that's a substantial achievement. Yeah, you've got to say a big well done to the record buying public of the UK and the US in that time. They were on the ball, weren't they? Yeah. And I do think because of the, the lag with the pickup on the Black Album, they were tended to be bought as a pair often. I mean, I, yeah. I, I remember that. I remember the two kind of came together almost, you know, when, when you met people who bought the Elton John album, they usually had Tumbleweed with it or vice versa. And together they are the wildest double album in existence, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. So. There's nothing that's as disparate musically between two recordings matter of months apart, but they sound like completely different people. Yeah. Yeah. In the spring of 71 in, in the States, this was, again, one of the four Elton albums to place in the Billboard Top 200 mm -hmm. at the same time, right? Yeah. Which, again, is one of those things that you have to follow up by saying, not since the Beatles. Yeah. Was something like that achieved. Mm. And then in 2012, Rolling Stone put this on their 500 greatest albums of all time at number 458. So it's held the attention of people. And I think if you poll Elton fans of our age i guess this would be number one for a lot yeah yeah and then also of elton's because he he redid this album in 2010 with leon russell with the union you know there's no other way of putting it the union is tumbleweed connection revisited yeah yes definitely especially when you got someone like gone to shiloh you know it really echoes that feel yeah most certainly yeah great. Yeah. yeah i think the older fans certainly rate tumbleweed as probably the number one uh, oh, well, I certainly do. I think Honky Chateau is also right up there for me as well. I think mm -hmm. it's great. But then again, actually, there's probably two or three songs on Honky Chateau that I could happily remove from the album. Whereas with this, 
it just stands complete as a work in and of itself. It's yes. a concept album with a capital C and a capital A, isn't it? And yeah. as such, it's quite special in the catalogue. Well, I think that's a nice thing about collecting Elton, isn't it, really? Every generation likes a different side to his music mm. for five decades now. And so nobody's right or wrong with their choice. It's just uh, probably the age you were when you first listened to one of his albums. Mm. Although I did see someone on Facebook recently that said Victim of Love was their favourite album, and I would say <laughs> that that person is wrong. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. That's just uh, such an easy target. That's such a low I know, fruit. I know. It is a really obvious target, but it just sticks yeah. in my head. It's like, oh. no. No, it isn't. It just isn't. It's, Can't possibly it's... comment, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder, you think about what we've talked about a few times in this extended conversation about this album, and the, the not just the speed, but also the diversity. So Black Album, Tumbleweed, Madman, Honky Chateau, those four. Uh, I would like to be educated as to what modern artist would do what Elton did back then yeah. in terms of the diversity of style, such incredible diversity of style in four subsequent albums every six months or even over a longer period of time at the beginning of their careers. There aren't many artists that you could say that. Beck stands out in modern-ish times as someone yeah. that was able okay. to look from both sides of the tracks and present very different music to very different markets. That's great. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, I agree. And and then obviously other artists like Bjork who've changed how they approach things. Bjork's not been on a singular journey. It's been lots of avenues, separate avenues for her. But yeah, your typical act, like even Radiohead have changed enormously. But it's agglutinative. Is that the word? That's not the word. It's <laughs> accumulative. That is the word. The right, change yeah. happens slowly and it's organic and you can track right. it. With Elton, it was completely wild, wasn't it? For me, Beck's the only person that's got some semblance of that randomness. You just don't know what you're getting with a Beck album in the early 90s. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think if, if Tumbleweed didn't exist, it would make sense to go from the Black Album to Madman. It would be a very logical extension. Absolutely. And as Elton said, that would probably have been something akin to career suicide. Yeah, he would have been locked into that lush orchestral sort of uh, thing. Yeah. So this served, you know, Tumbleweed served that purpose most certainly. It's the odd man out, as it were, but thank God. It's got some great stuff on this album, and uh, we're very lucky to be able to celebrate it together, the three of us. And I hope yeah. that the listeners have enjoyed being a part of this conversation and that they've had a few tumbleweedy thoughts. That's all we can ask for, isn't it? <laughs> hope we've made a connection. Haven't yeah, we? hopefully we've made a connection. Oh. That's better, John. He's good there, isn't he? Hey. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'm privileged that you both spent all this time chatting to me about what is a very important special album. But still, thanks for doing it here. You could have done it with any of the other Elton John podcasts, couldn't you? But you chose mine. It was a tough decision, but I think I, think yeah. I made the right choice. <laughs> no, thanks, Neil. It's yeah. been a real treat. What, really what a pleasure. It. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much. Neil. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I am going to go out playing a song that I don't even know what it is yet, but I'm going to come up with something at this point, something special. Peter was kind enough to share one of his cleaned up Warlock demos with the podcast. So a massive thanks to Peter for that and to him and to John for coming on the podcast. So anyway, here's Way to Blue. See you next time. 
Don't you have a word To show what may be done Have you never heard A way to find a son Tell me all that If you know the way to blue Have you seen the land Living by the breeze Can you understand A light among the trees Tell me All that you know What you have to show Tell us all the days If you know the way to blue Look through time and find your right Tell us what you find Yeah.